Psalm 110 as we continue our series uh, in the summer psalms. Listen to this portion of scripture. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. Shall we pray? Father, as we come to the scriptures, may we be reminded again of how your word is so powerful and timeless. It speaks to our needs and to each generation. This particular passage has much to say about your son about who He is and what He will do. And I pray that this morning as we take the time to consider what it says, that You will speak to our hearts and encourage us this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a time when the leaders of Israel were trying to trap Jesus with trick questions. And they weren't so much interested in learning or growing at all as they were in trying to find some reason to accuse Jesus so that they might put him to death. And Jesus answered their questions, and then he turned the tables on them by asking a question of his own. He said, what do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And as they heard this question, they thought, well, that's an easy question to answer. Uh, It's pretty obvious. He is the son of David, they replied. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord... How can he be his son? And they didn't know what to say. No one had an answer for him. And in fact, from that point on, Matthew tells us that no one dared to ask him any more questions. An apparently easy question suddenly became a profound and searching question about the identity of the Messiah. If the son of David could be called Lord, he would have to be more than just a mere man. He would have to be divine. That is God Himself. And that is exactly what Jesus was claiming. The passage that he quoted came from this psalm that was read for you this morning. It comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And Psalm 110 has been considered the greatest of the Messianic psalms. Psalms that talk about the Messiah and the work that he would do. There are others like Psalm 2, 22, 45, 72, and several others that touch on the person and work of the Messiah. But this one is all about the Messiah. 
It's not about David at all or anything related to his kingdom. It's about this future king that is going to come. And in fact, it is the psalm most often quoted in the New Testament. There are allusions to it and quotes from it over 27 times. We see that in each of the Gospels. It's found in the book of Acts when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. It's alluded to in Romans. It is there in the book of Hebrews where it is expounded greatly. And it shows up again in the book of Revelation. Why was it that important? Why was this psalm so significant that Jesus quoted from it and the writers of Scripture pointed back to it often? It is because of what it says about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And just to note as a point of reference for you, all of these things that were written in this psalm were written by David a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone writing down something today if we were given the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that would be read a thousand years from now? They would have perfect and clear understanding. So what does this psalm say about Jesus? It tells us, first of all, that Jesus is the divine King. It begins by saying, The Lord says to my Lord. And if you'll notice in your Bible, one of the things that they do in the translation in the English versions to give us a clue as to what's going on in the original languages is the first word, Lord, is all in caps. If you have the New International Version or New American Standard Version, it will do that. Uh, All in capital letters. That is a reference to Yahweh, to God the Father. The second Lord is just capitalized in the first letter, and the rest are lowercase. That is the word Adonai. And here, in this case, it is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. So God the Father is saying to God the Son, I want you to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a declaration from God Himself and it is about the Messiah, as I said. It's not about David. It's not about who He is or something that He was going to do in His lifetime. But it's about God's Son and what He would do. Jesus Himself affirmed David as the author of this passage, the human author and that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's a very clear testimony as to what we believe about Scripture. That this is the Word of God. It was written by men whom God used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that what was written is exactly what God intended. That's what we believe about the Scripture. And here Jesus is affirming that. And it is significant that Jesus applies these verses to Himself along with the apostles because of what they say about Him. To sit at God's right hand, for example, is to be given the place of honor and power. It is to share His throne with Him, to be at that place of authority that God has granted to the Son. The writer of Hebrews asked, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. God never said that to the angels, but He did say that to His Son. 
And to make his enemies a footstool means that one day all the peoples of the earth will bow before him. All nations will acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is a statement of total victory over his enemies. It is a picture of actually what literally happened in the Old Testament when a king would conquer another king. And that defeated army or nation would be brought before him and the king of that vanquished country or city or state would bow before the victorious king and that victorious king would place his foot upon his back or the back of his neck as a symbol of victory. God is one day going to make all of his enemies a footstool for the feet of Jesus who will reign and triumph over all of them. The writer of Hebrews again says that it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. It is to the Son, Jesus. And in putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to Him. In other words, when we look out at the world today, we don't see uh, everything in subjection to Jesus Christ as Lord. Evil is still present in our world. There are still those who do not believe in Him. There are those who reject Him. There are those in our world who literally war against the Son. But one day, all will bow before Him. That's what the writer of Scriptures is saying here. It also goes on to tell us that His kingdom will be an ever-increasing kingdom. He said in verse 2 that the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. That's an interesting phrase that the Lord is going to extend His authority, His rule from Zion, from Jerusalem, from Israel or that area where Jesus first appeared on the earth. And His kingdom is going to grow throughout the whole earth. This phrase that He will rule in the midst of His enemies is different than how earthly rulers rule. An earthly king or a ruler would drive out his enemies and set up a protected territory, an area that he reigns in. And his enemies would be outside of that. But here is a king who is powerful enough to rule even in the midst of his enemies. And what does that mean? As a reference to Jesus who rules in the hearts of men. The kingdom of God grows in this world each time someone comes to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Every time someone comes to acknowledge Him and place their faith in Jesus, the kingdom of God grows and His kingdom is extended throughout the nations of the earth. Even though people live in the midst of hostile lands. Two weeks ago, I was attending the Evangelical Free Church Conference down in Eden Prairie. And it was a great time of encouragement and fellowship. I love to hear the stories of what God is doing, not just in our country, but around the world. And there was a man there named Steve who talked about a conference he had been at in the Middle East where they had brought together believers from those countries for a time of encouragement, fellowship, prayer, study of the Scriptures to send them back. And there were believers there from Iraq and Iran and Jordan and Egypt and many of the other nations there in that part of the world that seems sometimes so dark and so hard to reach. 
And they came to gather and they were encouraged by their fellowship and what they were taught from the Scriptures. And then came this time of prayer. And as they prayed for those countries, they asked those believers from each of the countries to stand. And then the others would join in praying for them and what God was doing in their country. And when they went around the room, there were 12 different nations that were represented, but someone said, hey, there's, there's 26 countries in the Middle East that need the Gospel. Let's pray for those other nations as well. And so they had this big map on the wall that would probably be about the size of our screen up here. And they took it down and they put it in the middle of the room on the floor. And then those men and women got down on their knees and on their faces and they put their hands on that map. And nation by nation they went around and prayed for those countries and for the spread of the Gospel in that part of the world. Here were believers who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They were believers in whom God reigns even in the midst of His enemies. Believers through whom God is building His church in a part of the world that seems like such a stronghold of the enemy. The psalmist talks about that. That God is going to extend Christ's kingdom until one day all the nations of the earth will hear and have the opportunity to respond to Him. He tells us in verse 3, this statement, that His servants are willing to march into battle for Him. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. They will fight for Him. But the way in which they fight is different than conventional wars or fight. This is a battle for the hearts and souls of men. It's a battle that's won on our knees in prayer. It's a battle that's won as the Gospel, the truth of God's Word, is shared with those who do not know Him. And here are these troops, even like those believers living in the Middle East, that are willing to fight for Him, willing to live for Him, willing to die for Him. It's interesting how others in history have recognized that difference in Jesus Christ. Napoleon, who was not a believer, said this about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. But Jesus Christ founded His empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for Him. Jesus calls us to live for Him. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to lay down our life for Him? Are we willing to go where He sends us and to do what He asks? Sometimes we think of that in the big terms, in terms of those who have been martyrs who have given their life for Jesus Christ. But for most of us, what God asks of us is simply to be obedient right where we are. Are we willing to reach out to a neighbor or a co-worker who doesn't know Christ and to love them and build a relationship with them? Are we willing to forgive someone who has hurt us and to let go of that hurt and to love them as Jesus loves us? Are we willing to turn away from sin, those things that ensnare us, and to choose to follow Jesus Christ and to put Him first in our heart? Those are the practical steps of obedience that God asks of all of us 
to live our life as a living sacrifice, fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And then finally, in this first section, he tells us that this Messiah is arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. I love that phrase. I mean, that's such a poetic description of our Lord who has been arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, from the beginning of time. Jesus only veiled His majesty for a short time when He came to earth and took upon Himself our humanity. It shone through when He was transfigured, when the disciples saw Him and His glory shone through and it was brilliant. The angels knew that. They understood that this One who came to earth has been the Prince of Peace from the beginning of time. And He is arrayed in glory today, sitting before His Father at His right hand. His troops will be ready on that day of battle. And Jesus will be the One who will receive the due of your youth, the service of those who are fully devoted to Him. This passage speaks of Jesus, the Messiah then, as this divine King, not a mere earthly ruler, but one who is Lord and God as well. Secondly, he tells us that Jesus is both King and Priest in verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this also is a very remarkable statement. You see, under the Old Covenant, kings ruled and priests officiated. Kings ruled on the throne, priests served in the temple. Their duties were separate, there were lines drawn, and you didn't cross those lines. To cross those lines would bring judgment from God. It happened to King Saul, who lost his kingdom because of his disobedience when he took upon himself the duties of a priest in offering a sacrifice. King Uzziah became a leper when he went into the temple wanting to offer incense to the Lord and God judged him on the spot. There are those stories of people who transgressed the lines that God had set down and suffered for that. There was a reason that they were separated because of our sin. They didn't want that power consolidated, if you will, in one person. Only someone who was without sin could bring those offices together. And the Bible is telling us here that this Messiah will be both king and priest. And this statement is made in the strongest possible terms. It is confirmed by an oath from God Himself who has sworn and who will not change His mind. He says of His Son, that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is this Melchizedek? He's a strange character in some ways, if you will, who appears rather mysteriously in the Old Testament in Genesis 14. We don't know a lot about him, but what we do know is very significant. He is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. He is the King of Peace. He worshipped and served the one true God. He called Him El Elyon, that one true God whom He devoted His life to. 
His name means the King of Righteousness. We don't know anything about His genealogy, His beginning or His end, and yet the writer of Hebrews picks up on that. That He is like the Son of God without beginning or end. He is a priest forever. And so the Scripture says of Jesus that you are in that order of Melchizedek. And you are a priest forever. You can read about it in Hebrews 7 where the writer of Scripture there expounds this text fully. He tells us there that He is a type of Christ, a a figure of Christ who was to come. And when Abraham met Melchizedek, when he returned from his victory over Lot's captors, Abraham gave him a tithe, a tenth of all of the spoils of victory or all of the plunder from his victory. Abraham, who's considered the father of the faith, bowed down and worshipped God by giving to this priest a tithe of all that God had given to him. It's a remarkable picture that foreshadows Jesus Christ and who He will be as our King and Priest. These two offices then are joined in this One who is without sin. And the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is seated on the throne. He reigns. The One that we come to pray to and bring our requests to has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He is also our priest who intercedes on our behalf every single day. He is praying for you and me. What a marvelous picture that is and how encouraging it is to us when we have our needs to know that we can come before this One who understands our needs and who is there waiting and who represents us before the Father. Thirdly, this psalm tells us that Jesus is the coming judge. And we see that in verses 5-7. to This divine King is also the one who is going to judge the whole earth. On the day of His return, He will crush kings and kingdoms that have been in rebellion against Him. Satan and his demons will be defeated. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire ultimately. And all of His followers will be destroyed. Jesus will judge the nations. Heaping up the dead, it says here. It's a military metaphor that shows how complete His victory will be. And if we are following what uh, the writer of Scripture tells us about this passage, we have now moved from the book of Hebrews to the book of Revelation. The book of Hebrews talks about His role as priest, our great high priest and our sacrifice for us. But in the book of Revelation, it pictures this One who is to come. He's the rider on the white horse. He is that One who will come in victory in the future. Revelation 19 says this about him. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clear. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His sword is his word. It's the truth of God. And he speaks and it is. He makes the statement and he judges the hearts and thoughts and intents of men. He rules by the power of his word. When it says he will rule them with an iron scepter, again, it is a metaphor. An iron scepter is one that cannot be broken. And Jesus' reign cannot be broken. He rules forever and he is sovereign as Lord over all the earth. That's what the writer of scriptures is affirming here. He reigns today, but we don't see that in every area of our world. But he is Lord. He's Lord over science and medicine. He's Lord over what happens in education and in politics. He's Lord over media and entertainment. He's Lord over agriculture. He's Lord over every new invention and technology that comes along. He is sovereign over all of that. Why does He wait before His coming? It is simply to give people time to repent, to come to that point where they place their trust in Him. This is a time of harvest, time for the gospel to run to the ends of the earth. But we have one who sits on the throne who will return and who will come in victory. So what does this mean for us today? Well, there are times in our life when God may allow us to go through trials or to face challenges that can seem pretty overwhelming. He does that so that we might learn to put our trust in Him and realize that He alone is God. And when we see the victory come, He gets the glory. This past week, I've been reading the book 1776 by David McCullough. It's about the American Revolution, and it seemed like an appropriate time to read that during the July 4th week, and it's been very interesting to go through it. Frankly, as I read through the stories of the American Revolution, there are times when I just shake my head and I wonder how in the world did we win? (laughs) It was by the hand of God. One example of that, just to give you a picture of how things went at times in those early battles, was that after a brief victory at Boston, George Washington led the American Continental Army at that time into New York City, hoping to defend New York City. But he had been warned that he who controls the sea controls New York City. And America didn't have a navy. And as they were trying to build their bunkers and defenses and siege works and everything from Long Island through Brooklyn and New York and across the Hudson, the British Navy began to come in with their troops. Twenty ships, then forty ships, then a hundred, then two hundred, then three hundred, and finally over four hundred ships loaded with armaments and men. They had more firepower in five of their battleships than the American army had in all of their cannons on shore. Those soldiers that were untrained and had never been in battle just stood there with their jaws dropped. It looked like a pine forest out on the water as they looked at all the mass of these 450 ships that were there. When the British decided to land on Long Island on the beaches there and the troops came on shore, it was flawless without a hitch. 
as their navy landed and 15,000 men came on board with cannon and artillery. And more would follow, 20,000, including German Hessians that they had hired as mercenaries of the war. The Americans had less than half that. And Washington sent over more troops, seeing that the battle was going to be joined on Long Island. But as things went in the course of that battle, when the British attacked, they outflanked the Americans who were inexperienced in battle, and it was a rout. Many men fought bravely and died there, and Washington grieved over the losses, but they were forced to retreat. They retreated to the end of Long Island to Brooklyn, an area of about three miles, where they were surrounded by the British on the front and the East River on the back. There had been a wind that was favorable for the Americans that had kept those British ships from sailing up the East River. But as soon as they did, the Americans would be cut off. And there was only one decision to be made, one choice to be made, was to retreat across the East River. But how do you move what amounted to about 9,000 men and armaments and those that were wounded in battle and take them across that river? In the providence of God, the last units that had arrived were sailors from Marblehead, fishermen that came from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who all their life had been taking boats out on the water. And they rounded up every boat that they could find in New York, and they came across the East River as a mile wide at that point with sometimes swift currents. And in the cover of darkness, as silent as they could, they retreated across that water making the two-mile trip as silently as they could row those oars across. They had men on the front who kept up firing, trying to make some noise to cover it. But by morning, there were still some 3,000 people to get across. What were they going to do? Surely the British would see them as soon as the light of dawn came. But that morning, there was a fog that rolled in. And a fog that just simply covered Brooklyn, but not New York itself. And that fog lasted just long enough for them to get every single person who wanted to go across back over the East River to New York, and then the fog lifted. Nearly every man who kept a journal that day noted the fog and the providential hand of God in that. During the course of that war, there would be many such incidents like that. And it's kind of interesting to read David McCullough. I've read uh, Christian authors who make much of those events and give the glory to God. David McCullough is a historian. All he can say is that, you know, many people noted it was the hand of God, but he can't say that in what he's writing. He's just telling what happened in those events. But it's an example of how even in our life, the same God who was there and present, sovereign and providential, is the same God who works in our life today. He is still sovereign. And we see His hand move on many different times in our life as well. Whether it's in the building of a church, or whether it's in the individual decisions that we make. Or sometimes we don't know how God's going to lead or what He's going to do in the future but we know enough to trust Him for today and to take the next step of obedience. And that's all He asks of us, to put our hand in His and to trust Him that He will work on our behalf. 
That's what this passage encourages us to do. Alexander McLaren, writing about this text, said that the choice for every man or every person is this. (laughs) It is either being crushed beneath his foot or being exalted to sit with him on his throne. Because Jesus said that he that overcomes, to him I will give to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father upon his throne. And McLaren, in one of the most understated statements I have read, said, It is better to sit on his throne than to be his footstool. (laughs) This passage reminds us that Jesus is our King. Have I, have we, willingly surrendered our life to Him? Jesus is our priest. Have I accepted His sacrifice for my sins? And thirdly, Jesus is our coming judge. Am I ready for His coming? Am I looking forward to that day? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the beautiful picture of Your Son that is given to us in Your Word. And how David could write of such things a thousand years before Jesus even lived is only because of the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would take these things to heart, that when we were in trouble, we would look to Jesus as our strength and our victor. That when we face overwhelming circumstances or challenges in our life, that we would put our trust in You. That we would look to You and You alone for our salvation and our strength. And that we would walk with You in obedience each and every day of our life. May these things be true of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.